0: Sometimes when life gets really busy or really complicated, it's nice to have someone who can cut through all the confusion and simply tell us what to do. I'm sure that most of us have been in that kind of situation or that kind of scenario in life. We have so many things to do and so many things to get done that we're not even sure where to begin When we are in the midst of that kind of confusing scenario, it's helpful to have someone just tell us what to do. As you probably know, God's Word does that for us. It has a way of simplifying life for us, telling us what is most important, most crucial. It has a way of cutting through all the clutter to remind us of what is most significant, We see an example of that in our text this morning. So let's turn together to 1 Peter chapter 4. Over near the end of your uh, Bible, near the end of the New Testament is Peter's first letter and his second letter. 1 Peter chapter 4. Please follow along as I read verses 7 through 11. Peter writes, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you have been with us for this series in First Peter, then you know that this letter has a great deal to say about suffering and how to handle it as a child of God. One of the things that is easy for us to do when we are suffering or going through a hard trial in life, is to pull into ourselves and basically check out of life. That's not always the best way to handle our trials or our hard times or our suffering. If it is not physically impossible to do so, the healthiest way to handle our hard times is to keep moving forward in life, keep pressing ahead in life. That's exactly what we see in this passage before us. Remember, Peter is writing this letter to a group of believers who were suffering. They were going through some hard times. As a result, it would have been easy for them to check out of life and to pull into themselves. So Peter gives them these words of encouragement that we just read. In essence, he tells them to keep moving forward and keep doing the things that God's Word describes as a part of the normal Christian life. To say it another way, he exhorts them not to check out of life, not to stop doing what they ought to be doing as believers. There is nothing uniquely profound in this text, except that God's truth is always, in a sense, profound. But there's really nothing new in these verses because they talk about topics that are found throughout the New Testament. And the reason these topics are found throughout the New Testament is because they are so foundational in our Christian lives, in our walk with Christ. So with that in mind, let's consider this text together. Notice how Peter begins this paragraph in verse 7. He says, "...but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers." The first thing that Peter says in this verse is that the end of all things is at hand. The word end here in this verse does not refer to the stopping of time. Uh, Understand, it does not refer to the ceasing of all things. It's a word that refers to the culmination of all things or the consummation of all things. So, Peter is not saying that the end of the world is near. It obviously wasn't near when Peter wrote those words. We're 2,000 years later. He isn't saying that the end of the world is near. He is saying that the consummation of our Christian lives, which is our gathering together unto Jesus in the air, that is near or at hand, as some translations render it. That means it is imminent. Now, please hear me when I say this. The word imminent does not mean soon. It means at any moment. In other words, what Peter is telling us here is that our gathering together unto Jesus in the air could take place at any moment. It could be within the next hour, before we even finish this worship gathering. It could be within this day, or the coming week, or the next month or the next year, or it could be in 10 years, or 20 years, or 50 years, or 100 years. We don't know when it's going to happen, but Peter's point is that it could happen at any moment. So we need to live in such a way that we are ready for whenever the Lord descends from heaven with a shout and uh, gathers us to be with Him. We need to live in such a way that we're ready. This is very similar to what the Apostle John said in 1 John 2, 28, where he says, And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. We need to live in such a way so that if Jesus comes back, whenever he comes back, when, it, when that happens, if it's at any moment from now, just at, at any moment or just in a few minutes from now, whenever it is, we're ready. We're not ashamed. We're confident to see him. We're not living in a way that we would be ashamed to stand before him. That's what Peter is saying here also. We need to be living our lives in the right way so that we are ready for his return whenever that may be. Now that begs the question, what does living the right way look like? If Peter is basically saying here, listen, we need to be living the right way so that when Jesus appears, we're ready, we're not ashamed We're confident to stand before him. If that's what Peter is saying, then it raises the question, okay, what does living the right way look like? Peter tells us. He gives us four exhortations here in this passage, or four imperatives to tell us how we ought to live. Number one, be serious in your praying. Number two, love one another. Number three, be hospitable to one another. And number four, minister your gift to one another. Those are the four things we ought to be doing. As I said a moment ago, there's nothing uh, new in this passage, nothing uh, profound other than God's truth is always profound, because these are things we see throughout the New Testament. This is the way we ought to live our Christian lives: Be serious in your praying, love one another, be hospitable to one another, and minister your gift to one another. Let's look at each of these individually. The first thing Peter says here at the end of verse 7 is be serious and watchful in your prayers. Peter uses two words in this verse to describe how we ought to pray. And interestingly, these two words are translated in various ways in our English translations. No two versions are alike. You probably noticed that when I read the text depending on what version you use, NASB, NIV, ESV, no two English versions are alike. The first word that Peter uses means to think sensibly. That is why it is translated be serious, or be clear-minded, or be of sound judgment, or be self-controlled, depending on which translation you have with you. The emphasis of this word is, is on a clear-minded understanding about the importance of prayer and the proper focus of prayer. You see, the fact is that there are a lot of Christians who don't understand the importance of prayer, and they don't know what to focus on when they do pray. Peter realized that. Peter knew that was the case. He knew that there are Christians, have always been, sadly will always, probably will be, There are Christians who don't take prayer seriously. For example, there are some Christians who believe so strongly in the sovereignty of God that they minimize the importance of prayer by saying, hey, listen, God is in control, God is sovereign. And he has a plan that will be carried out regardless of what anybody does, regardless of whatever happens. God will do what God is going to do. As a result of that theological perspective, there are Christians who don't take prayer seriously. They don't think that really, they they may not say it, but they don't really think it makes any difference to pray. God's going to do what God's going to do. He's sovereign. He's in control. He has a plan. He will carry it out. We really don't need to pray. Some will be so bold as to actually say that, but most won't. They just don't take prayer seriously. Isn't it interesting that some Christians would allow their theology to discourage them from praying when the New Testament has so much to say about the importance of prayer? That's just one of the many things that can get in the way of us praying the way we ought to pray if we take Scripture seriously. Peter was well aware of the problems we have in this area of the Christian life, which is why he said that we need to be serious or clear-minded in our prayers. The second word he uses here at the end of verse 7 means to be watchful or sober-minded or alert, again, depending on your translation. The emphasis of this word is, is on being tuned in To what we ought to focus on when we do pray. When you put these two terms together that Peter uses here, they stress the importance of making sure that we pray consistently and we pray intelligently. That's the way to sum up what he's saying here. His exhortation is for us to pray consistently and pray intelligently. Throughout the New Testament, we are exhorted to pray this way, so it shouldn't surprise us to see Peter saying this. For example, in Luke 21, 36, Jesus said, watch and pray always. In Acts 6, 4, the apostles gave themselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. In Romans 12, 12, Paul said, continue diligently in prayer. Ephesians 6, 18 says, praying always. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says pray without ceasing. Colossians 4.2 says continue earnestly in prayer or be devoted to prayer. This is the regular exhortation of Scripture to our hearts and lives. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells two mind-boggling parables to illustrate this principle. Back up with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 11. I want us to see both of these. They're they're brief, so it won't take very much time. Luke chapter 11. In the early verses of this chapter, Jesus gives a model prayer or example prayer. It's often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. You you are familiar with our Father uh, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, etc. Well, coming off of that prayer, Jesus gives instruction on prayer or regarding prayer. Verse 5, he said to them, Luke eleven five. Jesus said to them, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from, from within, from within his house and say, do not trouble me. The door is now shut and my children are in bed with me. I cannot rise and give to you. And then here's Jesus' statement. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. And then Jesus draws the application. So I say to you, ask. And it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be open. Now, I don't know about you, but that is somewhat shocking to me that Jesus uses this story to compare our praying to God. He uses the story of a man who's in his house. He has his kids in bed with him, which was not uncommon. And that day on a cold night, everybody got in the same bed to stay warm. And he has another friend come, comes, who comes to the door, knocks. Hey, I need to borrow some food from you. And the guy says, no, go away, go away. But finally, just to get the guy off his back, he gets up to give him some food. And Jesus says here in verse 8, that even if the man in bed won't grant the request of his friend because they're friends... He will grant the request just to get his friend to be quiet. That's the idea behind the old English word importunity that is used in some translations. He will, because of importunity, in other words, just to get the guy to shut up, he'll get up and get him something. And Jesus uses this story to encourage us to pray and pray and pray. Then flip over to chapter 18 for another Story or illustration Jesus used. Verse 1 Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. That's nice when we are told specifically the reason behind a parable, the purpose, so we know where it's going. And here was the parable that Jesus gave He said, There was in a certain city a judge. Who did not fear God, nor regard or respect man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her or vindicate her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Here, now Jesus is drawing an application. He's given the parable, he draws an application. Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Again, At least to my mind, it's astonishing that Jesus would use such a story to portray prayer. The parallel, though God is in no way unjust, but it's obvious that the unjust judge in this situation is the one who in a sense parallels God. And he finally relents and gives in because this widow just kept asking and asking and requesting the, the point is obvi- obvious in both of these stories. Jesus is emphasizing the need for persistence in prayer. And that's even hinted at here when it says, Shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? In other words, sometimes it takes a long time. A long time of praying about something. So sometimes when we really believe something will honor God, and glorify Christ, we need to be persistent in requesting it in prayer. In 1540, Martin Luther's good friend and partner, Frederick Myconius became sick and was going to die shortly. On his deathbed, he wrote a farewell note to his beloved friend Luther. The letter was written with a trembling hand, a weak hand, from the person who was right at death's door. Martin Luther received the letter and immediately wrote back. His letter contained these words, I quote, I command thee in the name of God to live. I still have need of thee in the work of reforming the church. The Lord will never let me hear that you are dead, but will permit you to survive me. For this I am praying. This is my will, and may my will be done, because I seek only to glorify the name of God, end quote. Now, if you think that is shocking, just listen to this. One week later, Myconius recovered. He died two months after the death of Luther. Now, that will really blow open your theology. But then again, prayer has a way of doing that. There was a man in the church at Colossae who understood this kind of prayer and this kind of praying. His name was Epaphras. On our way back to 1 Peter, stop off at Colossians chapter 4. So past the Gospels, Romans 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. Paul, as he winds down this letter to the church at Colossae, says, Epaphras, who is one of you a bondservant of Christ, greets you. Now watch this. Always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you, a great concern for you and those who are in Laodicea and those who are in Hierapolis. The interesting thing about Epaphras was that not only did he continue in prayer, but he also knew what to pray for when he did pray. He prayed for fellow believers to stand perfect and complete in all the will of God, to stand strong in their walk with Christ. This is exactly what verse 2 of this chapter says we are to do. Colossians 4.2 says, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it. Some versions say, watch unto prayer, be alert unto prayer. Being watchful, being alert. The word watch simply means to stay awake. Don't go to sleep while you're praying. Who hasn't been in a Bible study or prayer meeting when all of a sudden you hear someone snoring? Don't go to sleep when you pray. But there's more to this concept than simply not sleeping. Watchfulness not only refers to staying awake, but also to constant spiritual alertness. Beloved, we need to be alert and aware of what needs to be prayed about in our prayers when we do pray. That's the way Peter uses the term in 1 Peter 4, 7, when he said, Be sober-minded and watch unto prayer. Look for the things you ought to be praying about. That's what Peter's saying. Keep your eyes open. Be spiritually alert. Know what you ought to be praying about in life. The evil one wants to make us careless to ignore prayer or become distracted from it so that our minds wander or get us preoccupied praying about the wrong things. As one man put it, quote, if you're going to be consistent, if you're going to pour out your heart, and if you're going to really pray for something, then you ought to know what to pray for. You'll never be persistent with God about something you're not concerned about, and you'll never get concerned about something until you know what you need to be concerned about, end quote. So all of this is behind Peter's exhortation to us in 1 Peter 4, 7 regarding prayer. Now let's go back to our text there in 1 Peter 4. Peter's first exhortation then is be serious about your praying. His second exhortation, second exhortation that Peter gives us is in verse 8 of chapter 4 where he says, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Peter has already told us this back in chapter 1, verse 22. But he doesn't mind repeating it because it's so important. We are to love one another fervently or deeply (coughs) or earnestly. This word means to stretch to the limit. And it was used to describe a muscle that was pushed to its limits. Picture an athlete who is stretching and straining and reaching and laboring his muscle to its maximum capacity. That's the way we should love each other, says Peter. We should love and love and love. And when we feel like we just can't love anymore, we should extend even more love. This is so important that Peter says here in this verse, above all, above all, we should love one another deeply. And then Peter adds an interesting statement. He says, for love will cover a multitude of sins. This is a quote from Proverbs ten twelve describing the nature of godly love. Love covers sin. There are at least two things this means, and one that it doesn't. So let me mention all three of them. First of all, this doesn't mean, please hear this, it doesn't mean that you cover up wrong when it needs to be exposed and dealt with. In other words, we've all heard about cover-ups, cover-ups in situations when the right thing to do is to bring this out in the open and deal with it. So Peter is not suggesting that we cover up sins and wrongs that need to be dealt with in a proper manner. If Peter were suggesting that, he would be contradicting other passages of Scripture. That's not what he's saying. However, one of the things he is saying is that love doesn't unnecessarily expose what doesn't need to be exposed. For example, if you have a friend or a loved one who is making sinful choices, you don't need to tell everyone about it. When you fall into sin, do you want people spreading it around everyone else? No, you don't. Genuine love doesn't unnecessarily spread or broadcast the sins of others. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 18, If your brother sins... Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. In other words, have enough love to deal with it privately, discreetly, one-on-one. Don't tell a dozen people under the guise of asking them to pray about it. Keep it private. Keep it private to the extent you can. Love covers sin and doesn't expose it unnecessarily. That's one of the aspects of this statement, that love will cover a multitude of sins. But there's another nuance of meaning in this phrase, and it comes from 1 Corinthians 13, 7, where the verse says, Love bears all things. That word means to pass over in silence. Genuine love doesn't make an issue out of every mistake, every misstep, every wrong, every failure. Love doesn't point out all the wrongs someone has done to him or her. You know, there are people who violate this in their marriage, and they wonder why they don't have a good marriage. Listen, beloved, God did not bring you into your marriage to point out every mistake, every misstep, every wrong, every failure in your spouse. That's not love. In fact, it's the opposite of love. If that's the way you function in relationships, then don't be surprised if you don't have good relationships. Love doesn't behave that way. Love bears all things. To say it another way, love is willing to go the extra mile to pass over in silence others' offenses. That is part of what verse 8 is referring to when it says love covers a multitude of sins. Love will just throw a blanket over sins and say, you know, I don't need to make a big deal out of that. I don't have to, you know, prove my point. I don't have to, you know, get vindication to me, or I don't have to get that person to, to uh, make things right with me. I'll just throw a blanket of love over it. As I mentioned, this is not saying, this is not saying that there's no place for exhortation or confrontation or church discipline, but it is saying that love is not looking for wrongs is not quick to see wrongs, and whenever possible will go the extra mile to pass over in silence others' offenses. I mean, think about it. Isn't this the way our Lord relates to us and the world? The Lord could judge all of us instantly and immediately. We all deserve it. But He is patient. He is long-suffering. He gives us time to repent. In fact, it's remarkable that the Lord hasn't already judged this world. But his love is forbearing because that is a mark of genuine love. That's what love does. It bears all things. It it covers a multitude of sins. So Peter tells us to have fervent love for one another. The third thing Peter tells us to be doing, to be ready for the end, is to be hospitable to one another. Verse 9, he says, Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. The word for hospitality in the Greek text literally means a love for strangers. It doesn't merely refer to having people over or people into your home, though it certainly would include that. But the primary emphasis of this term is having a love for people who are not in your circle. A love for people who are not in your close circle of friends and family. Peter has just told us to love one another in verse 8, and we might be inclined to think that it only means that we love the people who are close to us. So this exhortation in verse 9 broadens the scope. It broadens the circle. This is talking about loving those who are newcomers into your life, into your church. This is talking about loving those uh, who are newcomers and welcoming those who aren't in your circle already. It describes a heart that is tuned into and sensitive to people who are new to the community, new to your neighborhood, or, or new to your place of employment, or, or new to the church, or new to your circle, whatever that is. Now this certainly could involve having people into your home, But it's not just talking about an action. That's what I want us to understand. It is describing a heart attitude that is warm and welcoming. In Peter's day, this probably involved housing, traveling preachers, and hosting the church meeting in your home on occasion because those were common aspects of the early church. Many of the churches were house churches. They didn't have buildings to meet in, so it was common for people to host the church in their home. So it may look different in every culture and in every era, but the important thing is that we make sure to cultivate this kind of thoughtfulness toward newcomers. Beloved, this is a significant reminder for us as a church family. We regularly have visitors, and it's important that we cultivate a welcoming atmosphere to those who are new or those we don't know. And Peter, notice what he does here. He reminds us to do this without grumbling or complaining. There is nothing commendable about being hospitable and warm and kind to newcomers, but then complaining about it. We need to have the right action and the right attitude. That's Peter's third exhortation to us, be hospitable without grumbling. His fourth and final exhortation in this section is found in verses 10 and 11. Notice verse 10. He says, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The exhortation here is simple, and that is, minister your spiritual gift. The assumption behind this exhortation is that we understand what is taught elsewhere in Scripture concerning the fact that, that every Christian has been given a spiritual gift by the Holy Spirit to be able to minister to others in the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul teaches that extensively in First Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and also in Ephesians 4. If you are a Christian, understand, the Holy Spirit of God has given you a spiritual gift to be able to minister to other people. Now, Peter doesn't go into detail on that point, but he does mention it. And then he tells us to make sure that we are good stewards of that gift that was given to us. There are several gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4. All the gifts can be summarized in three categories. There are speaking gifts mentioned in those passages. There are serving gifts mentioned. And there are sign gifts mention. And one of the things that Paul emphasizes when he teaches on this subject is that the gifts are given to us for the benefit of others. We haven't been given a spiritual gift for our own selfish purposes. Along these same lines, the Greek word for spiritual gifts emphasizes the fact that it is a free gift from the Holy Spirit, catch this, not something that is to be earned, worked up, or forced. The Holy Spirit has gifted us to be able to serve others. And here Peter says we need to make sure that we do it. He also reminds us that the diversity of the gifts is an expression of the manifold grace of God. In other words, none of us are the same in the way we minister our gift. And and none of us are the same in, in, in how we're put together, our personalities, our strengths. And therefore the way we minister our gift won't look the same. Even two people having the same gift. Two people having the gift of teaching won't teach exactly the same way. Two people having the gift of encouragement won't encourage exactly the same way. It's the beauty of diversity that God has planned for the body of Christ. But the main point here is to make sure that we are good stewards of the gift the Holy Spirit has given us and the way to be a good steward is to minister to other people. Serve others. He says in verse 11, if anyone speaks... Let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's interesting to note that Peter only mentions a speaking gift and a serving gift, but says nothing about sign gifts. Obviously, that does not prove that the sign gifts had ceased by this time. But it is an interesting observation on the subject. Peter only mentions a speaking gift and a serving gift, but says nothing about sign gifts. And he tells us that when we minister our gift, whatever it is, we should do it in God's strength and for God's glory. If God has gifted you with a speaking gift, such as preaching, or teaching, or wisdom, or knowledge, or encouragement, then you need to make sure that what you say lines up with God's words in Scripture. That's what Peter means when he says here in this verse, to speak the oracles of God or the utterances of God. The NIV says he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. That's a good way to say it. He should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If you have a speaking gift, whatever it is, preaching, teaching, encouragement, wisdom, knowledge, then make sure that you use your gift properly. And one of the ways to use it properly is to make sure that what you say to other people lines up with Scripture. And then Peter says here in verse 11 if anyone ministers or serves, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. Don't serve in your own strength or in your own wisdom. Or your own way. Serve in the way that God has instructed in His Word. Do it His way and in His strength, not in your own way and in your own strength. This is a warning to let us know that it is possible, now please hear this, it is possible to misuse a spiritual gift in a carnal or fleshly way, which is sadly very common today with all the wrong emphasis in some circles of Christianity. Christians claim that they use their spiritual gift for their own edification instead of for the edification of others, which is totally contrary to Scripture. So we are to exercise our gifts in God's strength according to His way, and that will result in His glory. That's why the last phrase of this verse says that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The purpose of our spiritual gifts is to exalt and glorify God. Listen, we don't exercise our gifts to show off. We don't exercise our gifts to exalt self. Yet sadly, that is what you see within so many Christian circles, where there is such an emphasis on tongues and healing and miracles, there is a blatant showing off and exaltation of self. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that to pick on our brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm saying it because it is true in many circles and because it is wrong and it is unbiblical. Notice that Peter says, notice that he says nothing about the Holy Spirit in this verse. Isn't that interesting? He's talking about spiritual gifts. You would think that if the Holy Spirit is mentioned, this would be the context in which He would be mentioned. But Peter says nothing about the Holy Spirit in this verse. He talks about God the Father being glorified through Jesus Christ. There is no mention of the Spirit because it is the Spirit's role and goal and desire to exalt the Father and the Son. In fact, think about it this way. It was the Holy Spirit who guided Peter to write this the way he wrote it. If you believe in the doctrine of inspiration, which is a true biblical doctrine. Beloved, the Holy Spirit does not want to be in the limelight. The Holy Spirit does not want to be in the spotlight. His joy is to exalt the Father and the Son. His pleasure is to exalt the Father and the Son. Therefore, whenever you hear a Christian preacher or a Christian church or Christian group extolling the Holy Spirit for supposedly giving out the sign gifts of tongues or healing or miracles, then you know for a fact that the Holy Spirit is not involved in that presentation. Let me say that again. Whenever you hear a Christian preacher, or a Christian church, or a Christian group extolling the Holy Spirit, for supposedly giving out the sign gifts of tongues or healing or miracles, then you know for a fact that the Holy Spirit is not really involved in that presentation. Because that's not the Holy Spirit's focus. That's not His role. That's not His goal. That's not the way He works. His focus is to exalt the Father and the Son. And that should be our focus in life. That should be our goal in life. How can we do that? Obviously, there are lots of ways, but let me be very specific. How can we exalt the Father and the Son? How can we glorify the Father and the Son? Here you go. Be serious in your praying. Love one another. Be hospitable to one another. And minister your gift to one another. That's a sure way to exalt the Father and the Son. Let's pray together as we close. As you bow your head in closing, to just think for a couple minutes about what you have seen in God's word this morning and what you have heard. I don't know how the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart this morning, but I I am confident of this that if we came here this morning with open ears, receptive, then there is certainly something in this text for all of us. Some application, some area of life that we need to look at, we need to maybe strengthen maybe a resolve to change some area of life. If we are those who have ears to hear, then we will have heard something very pertinent to our lives. So however the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart and life through the Word of God, my encouragement to you is act on it. Maybe it was on the first point. Maybe it was about prayer. Or maybe it was on the section about loving one another or the The the, the statement, the exhortation of hospitality, or maybe the section on spiritual gifts, or maybe more than one. But however the Spirit of God has spoken to your life and your heart, be receptive. Don't resist Him. Don't ignore what He has said. And if you're here today without a relationship to Jesus Christ, then that is the issue you need to face. You can't really call God your Father. He's not your Father. You can't call Jesus your Savior. He's not your Savior unless you receive him as such. So what you need to do if you're you're here without a relationship to Christ, you need to humble yourself before God and in repentance, humility, simple childlike faith, ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. Ask him to come into your life to save you and change you and make you the man or woman he wants you to be. However the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart. Make sure you respond. Father, thank you for our time in your word this morning. It's always so practical. Even if it's not something uh, that's new to us, it's still something that's relevant to us, applicable to us. And as we think through these four exhortations that the Holy Spirit guided Peter to write, be serious in your praying, love one another, be hospitable to one another, and minister your gift. There are certainly applications and challenges for all of us. So may we respond in a way that pleases You, knowing that Your Word is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces deep to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. And may we lay our thoughts and our hearts before You in openness as You speak through Your Word. And in closing, Father, we want to pray for anyone here in our midst. In all likelihood, in a crowd this size, there are some present who do not know You as Father, who have never received your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior, may they understand where they really stand spiritually and understand the need to repent and humble themselves before you and receive Jesus Christ in simple childlike faith, in whose name we pray. Amen.